Hello and welcome to Ain't Kids the Cutest? <laughs> First up tonight, let me talk to my new friend, Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how are you? I'm okay. Just okay, huh? Yeah. What's your favorite thing to do in the whole wide world, Jordan? Be perfect. I see, okay. <laughs> well, I understand you like to draw, so why don't you draw your idea of perfection? You mean God? Yes, of course, my child. Bless your heart. <laughs> what are you drawing now? The Prophet Mohammed. Jesus Christ, go to commercial, Lou! You're listening to Bricolage. Truth, comedy, politics. With your host, Lev. episode of Bricolage, we talk to the wise and powerful and fascinating L.B. Brown. Plus, we meet a new wedding planner and trivia with Josh Ellis. But first, sponsors. This episode of Bricolage is brought to you by Clinton Hill Simply Art Gallery, just east of Classen on Myrtle Avenue. Your memories deserve the very best, so take them to L.B. at Clinton Hill Simply Art Gallery. Also by the laundromat down the street that charges $1.10 per pound of laundry but still employs dozens of malnourished women because a living wage is important but so are your brunch plans diane the laundromat down the street when doing the right thing is just too inconvenient and finally this episode of bricolage is brought to you by amazon.com we sell human embryos now and now here's the question. Alaska and Hawaii are the northernmost and southernmost states. What are the second southernmost and second northernmost states? Once again, Alaska and Hawaii are the northernmost and southernmost states. What are the second southernmost and second northernmost states? Okay, thanks, Josh. Uh, state geography, you thought you were done with it, but it's back, everybody. Trivia, answers coming up later. Hey, this is Kathy. Reach my voicemail. You know what to do. Hey, Kathy, this is Ashley from Princess Weddings. I got your email and was literally, like, off of my feet with my legs in the air. Can't even stand up. So excited. So just, like, OMG with all of the feels for you. I know we've never met in person, but I would kill myself with a dull knife if I had to watch you use one of the other wedding planning companies. And just, like, let them ruin your wedding and your life and let you get pregnant and then divorce because he cheats on you from dissatisfaction with your floral arrangement or because of a poor rehearsal, you know? Totally your decision, though. I'll send along my price list. Show it to your mom first, and then LMK. Bye-bye. My guest on this episode of Bricolage, a serious, a real treat. I spent almost two hours talking with L.B. Brown, a woman who I have been inspired by since the minute I met her. I brought some mementos into her framing store, and uh, she helped me frame them, and um, we sort of hit it off. So it's my absolute privilege to introduce everyone to my friend and framing consultant, L.B. Brown. Hey, L.B., how are you this evening? Well, hello. 
and thank you. When you first opened the business on Myrtle Avenue, what was Myrtle Avenue like? Scary. And this is 1991. <laughs> <laughs> is it true? Scary. I know that the, the notorious B.I.G. rather famously referred to it as Murder Avenue. How much of that was hyperbole to sell rap records? Well, you know, it depends on whose mouth that it flows from. You know, it's exciting to believe that there's mystery here and there's murders that have happened here. Right. Or it's a way of cautioning people. You don't want to go there. They're known for so many murders. But what people don't realize, uh, which I found out from a lot of the older Italians, that Myrtle Avenue from uh, Flatbush Extension to about Bedford mm-hmm. was a a strip of nothing but mobsters who reported basically to the Genovese family. So these were social clubs. So maybe it was, it should have been called Murder Avenue then. Maybe <laughs> That's where it came from, I believe. Yeah. I believe it probably came wow. from there. Because I remember speaking to someone who grew up around that time. And uh, he was the one who told me about it. He, he pointed out some social clubs. He said, we all knew what it was. All the neighborhood kids knew it. But we always felt protected. But we also knew that we should not make noise passing these social clubs. We couldn't ride our bikes. We couldn't jump, bounce balls. We knew better. Once we passed them, we could bounce balls. We could play. We could scream. We could yell. We could do everything. Right. But they always felt protected. So I think that people need to know the history of where Myrtle Avenue was during that time and how some of these names just kind of stuck with it. So let me let me back up a little. Let's start let's start at the beginning if that if that's okay. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like growing up in New York? And again, I understand this is 1986 when you were born. I can remember. Don't worry about okay. this. I can remember. <laughs> I have my visions. Yeah, know? but but I mean, what, I mean, what I mean, I, I don't remember a lot from my childhood, for example, right? I I have like these these sort of odd flashbacks of like, oh, I remember chasing after the ice cream man. I remember that sound that the song the the truck played, or you know, oh, I remember you know, being with my dad at the Yankees game, you know, there's like these memories that trigger me, but they're really like sort of five second kind of memories that just kind of play and there's no real audio attached to them. Mm. I don't really remember the sounds. I just kind mm. of have these brief sort of visual interludes. And I wonder, what do you remember about your childhood and and, and upbringing and, and coming of age at that time? Well, you know, I still have little flashbacks yeah. Because sometimes people say things to me that remind me of my childhood. I can go way, way back. I can remember when my family moved from East Harlem mm. to Queens, which uh, my, my father at that time bought a house. And we were one of three black families who moved in that area. But when I was a kid growing up, and I, I, I call Queens home because that's where I spent most of my adult life, even after getting out of school. It was definitely neighborhood. It was different than Manhattan because I had relatives and cousins in Manhattan um, we would visit. I remember the, the long ride across the Triborough Bridge. It was like, this is going to be forever to go home. <laughs> you know, I have to leave in the city. At the time that they bought the house, there was a natural route from the Rockaways going into LaGuardia Airport. And so all the kids in the neighborhood, we were always playing because everybody knew each other. You know, we'd run next door, we'd yeah. run outside, run in the backyards. Parents were sitting on stoops talking, and the kids were running around, and everyone knew it was really like 
family, neighborhood. You never ventured off the neighborhood, off the block, quote. You were being adventurous if you did and if you weren't in school. What was happening is that the planes would fly so low, the houses would shake, you know. <laughs> and we had the Long Island Railroad. You could tell when the railroad was coming by, it interfered with the television. So at just that point. different forms of transit shaking the infrastructure. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Great. Well, what I thought was so interesting and fascinating is that relatives at that time, they would venture out to visit us because we lived in the suburb. So it was a way to get out of the city. Queens was the suburbs. Suburb, yeah, yeah, at that time. And I, I never forget how strange it was that we had relatives that would come out and say, oh, what's that noise? What is that rumbling? And we were like, what? Oh, that's just a plane going over. Right. You know? And we never paid any attention to it right. until people would visit. And they'll say, what is that noise? And, oh, that's a train going by. Right. It was really, you know, something that I never thought of as a kid that I remember now. So when I hear a plane, the vision that I have is, uh, you'd have to check it out, but it was sometime in the 60s when a plane had to dump fuel because they thought that it was going to crash. And I remember oh my, my father complaining and saying, they're dumping fuel, they're dumping fuel on us. They're not dumping fuel <laughs> <laughs> And, of course, my mother, being a drama queen, said, I know I felt something on my face. I just know I felt something on my face. So it was like, and I remember the adults running out and said, the plane's going to crash, this plane is going to crash. And we looked up, and I, that was the first time I could actually see the little portholes. And it just looked like little images in the portholes. Planes crashing, like you see that in on the movies and the war f films. You don't, plane crashing. So I really remember that. And when I had the flashback of remembering that was 9-11, living in Clinton oh. Hill. I actually saw the second plane crash oh into, I mean, literally go into it, and it freaked me out. It of just course, it yeah. brought back what was going on here. Huh. And I mean, to the point that I could see the little portholes. Now, I don't know if it was that fearful that I could see the portholes, you know, the people look through. Yeah. But it just flashed back to many, many years back in Queens, remembering that plane that had to dump so much fuel. Addendum to the podcast, LB might be talking about the midair plane crash on December 16th, 1960. 128 people died when two planes collided with each other in midair. One crashed into Staten Island and the other one crashed into Park Slope. I remember that. I remember the little candy store. Tell on me the about corner. the candy store. Where the was that? The candy store was terrific. That was the hanging out place for the little kids on the block. First of all, it was a gang kind of thing. If we had any money, if any relatives came and said, oh, you look so great, here's a quarter, you know. Quarter was a big deal. That was like $10. Yeah. You know, you get a nickel, you get a dime here or there. As I think, we would share. We would wait until all of us, it was about four or five of us, and then there were the older ones that may be five or six years older. We'd all cross the street together and walk to the next corner and around the corner to the candy store. So if any of our parents ever wanted to know where we were, <laughs> go to the corner and you'll see them in the candy store. Now, the candy store also sold magazines and it sold newspapers and cigarettes there, but it was also a fountain. Oh, see the candy the stores. Hop. Okay. Yeah, the candy stores in those days also were fountain, soda fountain 
counters. Okay. Where you could go in and get your favorite ice cream. You could get banana splits. You could get uh, egg creams. Um, and, of oh, course, man. there was the phone booth in the back. So it was a nice German couple. Leo was his name. I'll never forget him. He spoke with a very heavy German accent, and we used to think he was the meanest man around. <laughs> Sometimes we would call him a Nazi. Yeah, but... German accents are tough, especially in that period. It's, it's... <laughs> it was as if he saw us coming and said, oh, no, here they come. Which I feel the same way, being a, is there some, Now some that you're people, a storekeeper of your own, you're right? like, get off my lawn, get out of here. Right, exactly. It's like, oh. But, and his wife, we used to think she was the most beautiful woman in the world. She was so nice. Her name was Esther. And she was always nice. They had no children. They actually lived in the back of the candy store. Oh, wow. Everyone knew them. And we couldn't understand how Leo was so nice to the adults, but he just tolerated us as kids. And she would just engage us as if it was our playground. Oh, did you see this? And I've got that. And oh, I know what you want. You'll love banana splits. And you couldn't tell me anything. It was, you know what banana splits are? Yes, yes. Okay. Well, they don't taste like that anymore. Banana splits. Why, Why do you think that is? Well, I tried it, and they don't taste like they Do you think it's that. just cheaper chocolate yeah, syrup, yeah, but like, worse ingredients? Yeah, or? it doesn't taste like is a banana. It, is it also possible that things just taste, sweets just taste better when you're young? Well, that's a good possibility because my teeth tell me so. <laughs> I love bazooka because oh, yeah. I used to blow bubbles like nobody on the neighborhood, in yeah. the neighborhood, on the block, could blow. Yeah. I took great pride in that, and I'm going to tell you, how this connects to my art. My mother said this to me many years ago. So I was the one with the bazooka bubble gum. This time, bazooka used to make two little sheets, and uh, small little sheets, no more than an inch apart. I call them little sheets, together in a pack. Yeah. Then it started growing up where they were connected, like yes. a little thing. And yes, that around. I remember with the comic strip wrapped exactly. around it. Yes. Exactly. I just get... If I, if I had 25 cents, I'd buy 25 penny candies. Penny candies were big deals to us. I mean, if we could hold five pieces of candy, we could eat for the rest of you know the afternoon. I don't think anybody would let a child eat a piece of food that cost a penny anymore. I, I, think I don't think you be... could find a penny <laughs> yeah, candy. Right, right. But right, it right. was just incredible. But the biggest treat for me is when I could finally get on the uh, swinging seat at the soda fountain and order a banana split. I first fell in love with a banana split at the local candy store as a kid. And so they knew that when I wanted to treat myself or when I had money, here she comes. I had my little seat, I, and I'd say, I want a banana split with cherries. And Leo, Mr. Leo, we used to call him, he'd look at me, <clears throat> grunt, and he'd fix the best banana split. <laughs> The best best egg creams in the world, and that was New York to me. That yeah. was I think every neighborhood had their favorite little uh, candy store. We called the candy store, but it was actually a fountain and soda shop. Many many years, many many years went by, even as a young adult, and that whole strip was torn down in the neighborhood. Really? I I just feel the, the the energy of that couple, and often wondered, you know, whatever happened. I remember. That, that uh, they had to close. Um, the developer was coming in there. Uh, so that was my first introduction into gentrification. That was probably in the early 60s, late, yeah, early 60s.
this is Kathy. Reach my voicemail. You know what to do. Oh my god, I almost forgot. Which country club did you say that your fiancé belonged to? We might be able to avoid having to tip the kitchen staff for the reception if he knows the right people. Do you have any ideas about a particular princess theme? Have you considered doing something with an African colonial motif? So just like check out my Pinterest if you're looking for inspiration. And yes, we can totally have the band dress as slaves. And you're definitely not the first to ask, okay? So just call me back. Okay, bye. Tell me about the bazooka. Well, bazooka was very interesting in the fact, like I mentioned, I, you know, it's the biggest. I used to love bazooka, the taste of bazooka. Wads of bubble gum, <laughs> huge bubbles. No one could blow bubbles like I could. So, as I said, it was the candy store. Well, going to the candy store, there were magazines there. The older kids on the block would buy the, those uh, love magazines, like the True Love. What is it? What do you mean, like? Well, you, you, like they were they were romantic magazines. Like then. Cosmo, or I, I don't no, know. No, this was more risque than Cosmo. We were we're really? talking about these were the grand. Well, they preceded the the romance novels. Oh, okay. So these, these were magazines that okay. dealt with love and romance and excitement and fantasy. And so the older teenage girls would buy those. So we would want to act like we were big. We were buying comic books, though. <laughs> and uh, then there was some magazines out that I remember. Um, it may have been like 17 or something like that. That had ads in them. And sometimes they would have movie star. I think it was a movie star magazine or something like that. Okay. Well, I would always buy the magazines that had pictures in them. Fascinated by that because of the television. The television was my babysitter. Being a New Yorker, there was such thing as latchkey kids. These yes. were kids that allowed themselves to come home after school. Well, while I lived in Queens, I was a latchkey kid. So the television was my babysitter. So I've always been intrigued by movies and commercials and things of that nature. So I was exposed to movie stars. So if I saw them in a magazine, I was excited. I used to tear out the pictures of of the movie stars or the big hit movies with the stars and the promotional shots. I used to tear them out and save them. So once I started to hang them on the wall and my mother in my room, my mother said, you can't do that. You cannot hang these on the wall. You put them out. Well, why? Because you're putting holes in the wall. You can't put holes in the wall. How are you, you hanging them? Probably with a nail or a pushpin or something oh, like that, okay. you know? And she was like, no, you can't do that. Well, I wrote a letter. Uh, it was a school project. I'll never forget it. And the school project was if you write a letter to your local politician and things like that, they will answer you. I think it was Nixon was the president. This was the turning point, by the way. Write Richard Nixon. We wrote Richard Nixon. And each one of us got a letter purportedly with his signature. And I was so proud of it. And I was so perplexed that my mom said, no, you can't do that. So that was a denial. So I had to find another way to get this Richard Nixon photograph on my wall. I noticed how bubblegum would get sticky and hard. It was almost oh. like a glue. So what I started doing was putting bubblegum at the corners of, of the papers. 
and it stayed on the wall. And once I saw that, then I started putting all my favorite movie stuff. At that time, it was like Ricky Nelson. Picture me <laughs> in love with Ricky Nelson. You know. Well, anyway, that's how the bazooka bubblegum came into play. Once I discovered that you could put bazooka bubblegum on paper and it sticks to the wall, everybody was on the wall. Anyone during that period who had a television show that was in the magazines wow. that I found exciting, that I would just tear out the magazine and put them on. Well, I, I have to ask: Were there no African Americans on television? Were none Absolutely of them in not. the? Were none of them in your magazine? No, the only African Americans. Sidney Poitier was after this. The only African Americans that was on television yeah. was Kingfish and Andy. Oh, Amos and Andy. And, 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 yeah. The, Kingfish is the actor's name, right? Right. Right, right. Amos and Andy is what I meant to say. Originally, was, it was two white guys, right, on the radio, radio. And then when it went to TV. It was two black guys. Yeah. Wow. So so you're, you didn't have a choice. There was, there was no other choice, I guess. But your sort of cultural influences, although obviously this was a very, you were at a very young age, were these kind of the same folks that little Susie was was looking at in Iowa or in these you know even in a very very diverse area of, of the of the country the uh, of the United States was was pretty segregated but obviously New York City was was very diverse and 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 colorful still the options were pretty limited well pretty much when when I grew up yes that's true but not as diverse as what it is today when I grew up in New York basically you had blacks you had uh, Italians, you had Jewish, and you had Irish. And in Queens at that time, we had little communities being developed there. For instance, um, in Ozone Park, that became a migration of uh, Italians mm. living in that area. But it was all very segregated. It was, it was segregated. Everybody had their neighborhoods and their enclaves. Exactly, and that's what made us the same. Because uh. we had neighborhoods, we understood that. If you were a friend, like I was friends with a lot of Italians at the school that I went to, there were probably more Italians there. And if if we were to befriend each other, we knew the borderlines without talking about them. We knew, in other words, if you said, I'm going to Ozone Park, you're not going over there to see black folks. You see, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we know this. But that didn't mean you didn't have friends. For me, I, I did live a, a very sheltered life. My life was right there on that block. Mm. So it would be many years uh, as a as a teenager, that I would venture beyond the block area. Wow. Yeah. Part of it is how I grew up. The other part is I just had uh, uh, growing up as an only child and then having parents who were very protective, authoritarian and protective at the same time. So I didn't know any Just better. like Richard Nixon, authoritarian and protective. I apologize. I went well, political there for well, no reason. You know, because, <laughs> but that was the period because was, we're, we're yeah. talking about that's how children were raised. Right. And the neighborhood raised them also. And uh, everyone knew who to stay away from, who to be involved with. They knew what was going on. There were some secrets. It was just a good, solid neighborhood. Of course, I'm not going to say the influx of drugs didn't affect some of the kids that I went to school with. I mean, I didn't know what that was all about until, you know, it was always very hush-hush. In other words, uh, so-and-so died. How could they die? It was only like 13, 14 years old. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I couldn't... Old people died in my world, not young people. Yeah, of course. Then um, when Vietnam War came about, then that's when I knew young people could die. These were 
people I went to school with or went through elementary, junior high school, high school. And, you know, here they were, 19, 20, 20 years old. So my whole idea about there's a world much larger than the world that I live in now that maybe I should explore it. And I think New Yorkers are like that. Yes. I, I think they're I very think much, so um, uh, you know, just to bring it up front, too, to, to say something about Trump here. Trump is a New Yorker. He comes from Queens. I get it. I get him. But that doesn't make... <laughs> But but I don't it think make I don't him think right he, to be a president yeah. though. But the point right. is, I get that. Right. But it, but you know he's just we cross borders, we overcome barriers, we just do things when we get up off our knees. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or, or, or your ethnicity. Right. I mean, if you're really rooted into the New Yorker that I that I know, you can tell a real, true New Yorker. There's just something about us. That um, you we know, build a wall to keep people from New Jersey out. <laughs> <laughs> but I won't say it to everyone. Like I get them. Time for Brickerize Trivia Answers with Josh Ellis. The question was. Alaska and Hawaii are the northernmost and southernmost states. What are the second southernmost and second northernmost states? The second southernmost state, which should not be surprising, is of course Florida. The second northernmost state is Minnesota. Its northwest angle above the 49th parallel juts out into Canada. Hey, this is Kathy. Reach my voicemail. You know what to do. Sorry, I thought of one more thing, like, right after I hung up. If there's any kind of, like, authentic food or culture that you're particularly interested in appropriating, just let us know, okay? Believe me when I tell you, I've, like, basically kidnapped an entire group of Navajo Indians or Native Americans or whatever just so they could make fresh bread for the bride. <laughs> one of the groomsmen got laid, though, so, you know, it was like a modern-day Pocahontas. And he was losing his hair, so we kept making jokes that she must have scalped him to finally exact her revenge on the white man. <laughs> L-O-L totes NBD. No press, no probs. Either way, though. Call me. You said that the bazooka is what kind of triggered in this, that you have this memory of realizing you could hang things on the wall. Uh, I just wanted to say, when I was a kid, okay. I subscribed to Rolling Stone magazine. Now we're talking about the 1990s okay. and I would cut the covers off oh. and I would tape them to my ceiling. And I had probably one day I just put 30 up. My mom was not pleased. Now I wasn't hammering them into the ceiling. She just, what the heck are you doing with it? I got to buy more scotch tape. What are you doing? And, um, and then I finally, she, she elected to repaint coincidentally you know a couple of years later it's like i guess you have to take them down eric i'm so sorry but uh i think maybe there's there's some common ground in doing things that uh you know you, you everybody wants to personalize their room that you know maybe people want to personalize their online page people have their own websites or their myspace pages or whatever they want to personalize their little thing you know and i think maybe there's something about teenagers wanting to carve out an identity for themselves i, I identified with what you were saying two two meanings of the word identity there wow well yeah. you know nicely expressed and i think you're 
you're probably right about that. Yeah. Because that's our private little world, our room. That's where our dreams, where our thoughts. Uh, we can be whoever we want to be in our mind's eye. And and if these are things that are tangible that we appreciate and want to walk into, then then we do it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Um, well, well said. I, I do want to give you a chance to talk about uh, Trump again because you, you were about to, I think, say something. And also because I'm... I think a lot of people are genuinely frightened that uh, this guy is here. And uh, I feel like you might have some insight to provide. Donald Trump is the grand emperor of salesmanship. And I say that because he sold America. (laughs) He sold (laughs) a large enough portion of America. His idea that they bought into it. It should not have happened, but that's what makes him so great. Now, that doesn't make him right, and I don't agree to a lot of what he's doing, but I see that little New Yorker in him. That hustle. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I'm looking at a photo on the wall. We're in in LB's office for the listener. There are a lot, shockingly, a lot of very well-framed photographs and mementos, um, and I'm looking at a photograph of you standing next to Hillary Rodham Clinton Ah. as you're telling me about... uh, about Trump, that's I just wanted to point that out. Um, when is that from? That's from the she was senator then. She was making her run for senator. Okay. We were told this was a, a luncheon for business women, and she uh, was addressing this luncheon in Albany to announce the fact that she was running for New York State senator. And so someone in her camp came over and said, "Hillary is going to exit this door." But she's going to come right by your table. So one of the people at the table who did campaign work for her was sitting at the table. And sure enough, she did. And her assistant, too, by the way. It was the first time I saw her because I kept saying, I know that face. I know that face. And I know who she was. She was her assistant even then. Uh, Aberdeen. Huma? Huma Aberdeen? Uh-huh, yeah. Not great taste in men. <laughs> Poor child. <laughs> Poor child, yeah. But okay, so Huma but, uh, came over to the table. Well, well, she was with her at the table. Oh, I see. Being the New Yorker that I am, yeah, I jumped up from the table because I was the closest to the door. And I knew that she had to come past me to get uh, out the door because they had told us, your table is close to the exit door and she's going to come right through here. And, and so I kind of jumped up. Really, it was a little dream, but I think I probably said something to who I am, and she says, oh, how nice to to meet you. And I pulled out the card. I had the card really in my hand, and I kind of gave it to her. She said, Clinton Hill, gee, that name Clinton. You know, (laughs) we had a little talk. She says, I really like that name. But during that, it was the photographers who were around. Uh, And I guess they said, why is she stopping talking to this woman? Why is she talking to this lady? (laughs) What was she supposed to be getting at it? Why is she talking to her? And so they called her name. She was just like she was on stage. I mean, she just had that smile on her face, and she looked. And I said, oh, I don't know about that. That was kind of, like, strange, you know? Like, she, she is was ready a, for the She camera. does have a very stage-ready face. You, by contrast, are in the middle of a conversation with her, it looks like. She and left then she me just... hanging. <laughs> <laughs> she left me hanging. <laughs> yeah, well, she should have gone to Wisconsin, I guess, to campaign. So I know um, it's getting kind of late. We don't have a lot of time, but there is there is one thing I, I wanted to make sure I covered with you. Okay. You and I have discussed millennials before, and you often tell me 
that there's, you know, there's some advice you'd like to give to the younger, younger generation. You know, it doesn't have to be preachy or anything, but, you know. I don't have any millennials around me, I, not in my family at all. The ones that I see are the ones who come in as customers. The millennials that I see come in the business, I think, are mature above their age. But there's one common thread is that they're all looking for something. They want to do something a little different. There's so many that come in and say, I'm trying to be the best at my job, but I really want to do this. And so the conversation, once we open that kind of conversation, I think I can be inspirational to them in the sense that I can talk from my experience and tell them you should plot and plan, but find your passion because it's not that far from you. Stay true to who you are and it will come to you and you'll be very successful at it. I found guys who come in who want to be chefs and they have degreed up to one guy's a chemist. He's a pastry chef. And, <laughs> and, and, and he said he always wanted to be a pastry chef, but he ended up being a chemist. He didn't vary too far. And he explained to me, a pastry chef has to know how much ingredients and how it's going to interact through the cooking. And, yeah. and I never thought about that until he started breaking it down to me. How did we get into that conversation? Because he brought in a poster that he found on the internet, not a poster, actually it was a print, that dealt with all types of food in very comical, very creative ways. The other, the person who comes in are the privileged ones. I want it now. I want it fast. I want it my way. And... I find them a bit rude and disconnected, but they're also connected to the smartphones. So their world is tech world. And they're losing something there. They're losing that that human touch, that feel that we develop as we go along, and then that's how we find ourselves. Like there's something in the soul or the spirit of a person who says, ah, it was always there, now I've released it. These kids, if I told them to go out and find their passion, they'll say, well, let me Google it. (laughs) What is my passion? (laughs) Exactly. And so they're losing a lot. So that's the other side that I see now. Um, Their world is is a different world. I hope I fall into the first category. Of course you do. (laughs) Of course you do. I think you're following your passion. I'm trying to. I think you're helping. Well, but I think you are. When you're actually doing it, you're developing it more. Yeah, you remember you when know? I when we first met, I was working at the law firm. And of course, you're, I didn't know if you wanted me to mention that or no, not. No, no, but, no, we can talk but, about uh, that. So yeah. how, how have I... Yeah, no, let's talk about that. Well, I'm happy for you. Yeah. Because I do feel that you are following your passion. But I also, you know, you've come back to me as my little baby that's in love. so i don't know if that's helped also i'm very appreciative of this opportunity because i think this is a part of your world that you're enjoying and i'm enjoying it with you i hope you continue i hope that uh, your listeners continue to spread the word because you're not only talented but you're funny and you're sincere and i think people will enjoy your ideas and who you bring forward and it's just a delight for me. Well, it's mighty kind of you to say, and I feel the same way about you. I look forward to coming to Clinton Hill Framing and Art Gallery or whatever, wherever the business may take you for a long time. And uh, yeah, I think we can uh, can end it there. Thanks so much for talking to me. It's been a pleasure. (laughs) 
Hey, all right, that's all good. So what'd you think? Email us at podcastbricolage at gmail.com. Tell us about your experience putting things on the ceiling that your mom didn't like. Or about banana splits or millennials or the Park Slope plane crash, whatever. This has been Bricolage, created and hosted by Lev. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. Theme song, sponsor song, and trivia song written by Alex Schiff. Creative Commons attribution credits are in the text description of each episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us a good review on the internet. And if you didn't, it's probably the fault of an immigrant somewhere. Let's blame him or her instead of me, okay? See you next time.